Good evening. You are listening to the Year Now podcast. Today is the 24th of January. I'm Craig, and joining me tonight, we have our regular crew. We have Ronwyn. Welcome back. Thank you very much, Craig. I'm glad to be back. It's good to be back. Yes? No? I said, yeah. Right. Did, oh, didn't you hear me? I said, I'm glad to be back. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I was just trying to riff on a Beatles song or whatever. Oh. Um, and uh, Mark. Hello, Mark. Hey, how's it going? Can I give you the stink eye like Bronwyn just did? Because I think that would be fun. <laughs> sure. Is that smoldering enough? <laughs> more smoldering, Mark, and I'd be falling in love with you. Oh, I, I don't mind that, Craig. I kind of like you. Very good. So, Bronwyn, how so, was it in the wilderness? How was it being away from the podcast? Oh, I don't know. It was kind of glorious. But, you know, there was family stuff going on. So there was a bit of a bit of work going on in the background as well. So, you know, it almost made me wish I was at the podcast. <laughs> but, but kind of glorious having time off for me when I missed an episode. I had FOMO. I, I was hating it. It's like I'm missing out on something here and I am not coping well with it. <laughs> <laughs> Did it help that we were texting you going, where are you, Mark? Are you on your way, Mark? <laughs> I was at another event that I didn't want to miss out on. It's just, it's too much when I have two social engagements. It's ridiculous. <laughs> You're such a social butterfly, Mark. Uh, no, but thank you, Craig. I'll, I'll take that compliment, even though it's nowhere near the truth. Uh, yes, it's interesting you use the term um, FOMO because it's easily um, mistaken for MOFO, uh, <laughs> which is a completely <laughs> different thing. <laughs> which my wife happened to use recently when uh, <laughs> uh, meaning FOMO, but she used FOMO, uh, MOFO instead. So. <laughs> oh, nice. What a great mistake to make. <laughs> yes, indeed. Anyway, uh, we should get on with things. I've got the sort of rather serious uh, topic of the therapeutic products bill, um, which is a bill coming up to be presented at the Select Committee in Parliament. And it basically covers, it's a replacement for the Medicines Act um, from 1981. It's a long time ago, probably before many of our listeners were even born. In fact, you two went, when were you born? You two weren't born in 1981, were you? 84. 84. Jeez, since before Bronwyn was born. Mark, mm-hmm. you're a little bit older. Yeah, you, you flatter me there. Thank you, Craig. Um, 75, I was born, so right. I'd been around for yeah. a little while by that point. Yes. Anyway, so the Medicines Act has been around for quite some time, uh, and in in the intervening years have been many, uh, many things have changed, and so they're now introducing this um, therapeutic products bill, and the idea of that is it's going to be able to regulate natural health products as well as uh ordinary medicine so um sort of so far the medsafe has been the agency which is um making sure that medicines are safe but they don't really have anything to do with natural health products um and so that's kind of been a bit of frustration for skeptics um in that we really sort of can't complain to to MedSafe about natural health products unless they are making claims to be medicines. This therapeutic products bill was going to sort of address that, and so natural health products are going to fall under under its auspices, I guess you could say. We've had a look at the bill, 
And there are a few things that we're sort of concerned about. Now, having concerns is a good thing because we can go and um, put a submission into the select committee and the select committee uh, deadline is by the 15th of February. And Mark, I understand that the Wellington Skeptics had an activism meeting um, a week or so ago where you looked at the the bill. We did, yes. yes. Yeah. So uh, myself and Daniel Ryan and Bronwyn met in the pub and um, we read through the whole thing. Well, Bronwyn, I think, got bored like halfway through and disappeared. Well, um, I was also there maybe about an hour before the, both of you, and I was reading through the bill on my own with a be- with a lonely beer. Right. But, I mean, I have to say it was quite hot that day. So after having already spent an hour in the pub, I was getting a little bit heated, literally. So I needed to leave. Yeah, right. it, it's a long bill, right? Once I got down to something like Clause 300, it's like, geez, how big is this? Um, yeah. There's a lot in there. But there is there is a good explanatory note that gives a, a good summary of what's in the bill, uh, which is quite an easy read. Although even that is relatively long, it runs to a few pages. So yeah, it's it's it's, it's a relatively easy read. But even so, it's not a a short two paragraph uh, summary of what's in the bill. But yeah, so there is a, there is a lot in it, and there's a lot of potential loopholes there. Um, that we could potentially be worried about. One of the mm-hmm. things that really sort of sticks out is that natural health products under the bill generally won't be required to have any proof of efficacy. Um, Which is unsurprising to an extent. I think the previous iterations of bills like this, so the original uh, natural health products bill and the old trans-Tasman bill that was languishing for years, uh, both of those had similar things where they just drop that efficacy requirement when it comes to natural health products, like just being able to show that they're safe is supposedly enough, that showing that they're effective is not needed because they're natural health products. We know they don't work. We know that, you know, beyond the ones that science has figured out does work, that we end up synthesizing and turning into pills. The rest of it pretty much has no I guess, trustable utility. Some of it might have some utility, but none of it good enough that doctors are prescribing it en masse. Mm, Yeah. So when I wrote the uh, article in the newsletter, one of our kind of regular commentators from the sort of natural health side of the spectrum emailed me. Um, I won't won't mention their name, but um, they made an interesting comment um, saying, your article about medicine regulation reminds me that we are currently incorporating Maori tanga into every aspect of digital life and law. I think new regulations were planning to discriminate against herbal-type products, but that would have included many traditional Maori medical treatments. So that is no longer politically or culturally acceptable. It appears the regulations have been modified to simply be risk-averse without removing choice, so Maori medicine can be included too. Is that politically expediency or what? Um, so comments on that? No, no comment on that. Thank you. I'd rather not go there. <laughs> herbal yeah. product, herbal product. I, I don't care too much where they come from. These things either work or they don't. And if they don't, nobody should be allowed to make claims about their benefits, about what they can do. And this is one of the real problems of this bill as it stands, is that 
there's going to be so natural health products will ha- will only be allowed to make approved claims but there's going to be a bunch of claims that will be approved and a lot of this is coming from pharmacopoeia is coming from books that either are old or purport to be old where the books you know it might be a, um, an ayurvedic medicine book or a homeopathic book whatever it is these books just make bald-faced claims about what herbs and other things can do. And the law as it stands by the looks of things is just going to accept a whole bunch of these. It just says, Mm. if it's in this book, then that's going to be an approved claim. And that's horrible because having read through these books, having downloaded them for the previous iteration, the Natural Health Products Bill, we went through, there's a whole bunch of nonsense in there that not only is not going to be effective, which is pretty much the case for all of it, but it's going to be actively dangerous. I mean, Mm. things like snake venom and things like this, where it's like snake venom is good for treating. And it's like, no, it's not. I don't care that it's in an old book that might say that it is. It is not useful for that. There's no peer-reviewed studies that show this. The likelihood is vanishingly small. And the idea that we'll be then letting these products make these claims, it it scares me. Mm. I think we also, you know, you're sort of saying snake venom, but We also need to think about the very common ones that are still available, like St. John's wort, ginseng. These are all natural products that can actually have very serious interactions with common medications that we get from the hospital that we get prescribed. So for for me, it's really we have this massive assumption that natural is equivalent to safe or even better. If the natural health product doesn't work, it's still safe and just Mm. completely neglect that, you know, anything you ingest does affect the metabolism of other medications in the liver. And that's the stuff that can hurt you or kill you, or if not just sort of really make the medications that you really want to work completely ineffective. So there's, for me, there's a massive obligation that if you are going to bring in NHPs into this bill, there needs to be real dedication to review what the education of our healthcare practitioners are in terms of the impact these products can have on the medications that we are going to commonly prescribe. How do mm. we assess our you know, health consumers? How do we interview them and how do we counsel them? Because people are going to use these natural healthcare products anyway. So how, do we, how can we advise which ones to avoid, aside from saying maybe avoid all of them, <laughs> um, you know, if you if you don't train people to be if you don't train your future doctors and nurses and midwives and pharmacists to be aware. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess from what I what I've read, it, it seems like they're, they're going to be able to make different types of claims, whereas as now we've seen all these um, things about alternative health products that make claims like supports your immune system and those sorts of claims that don't really mean anything but sound sound good to, to consumers. Um, well, at least at least as far as the ASA is concerned, don't mean anything. I think to the average consumer, when you say it supports good gut health, most people that read that think, oh, it's going to help my gut mm. health. And not what the ASA has always claimed is that, oh, yeah, this this claim means nothing. It doesn't mean it's helping your gut. Uh, just nonsense. Most people will will read it and think, ah, brilliant. This is for my gut. Um, but yeah, it seems like it's only going to get wider. There's only going to be more ability for claims to be made. Um, and officially sanctioned where we're not going to be able to do anything about it anymore. We can't even argue this is a strong claim. You need to take this seriously because the company making the claim is going to go, well, it's an approved claim. Look, it's in this 400 year old book that somebody in India wrote. Uh, therefore, we're allowed to make it. 
guess we should really be making sure that we make this submission and, and bring these points up to the select committee. I'm sure that there will be many people from the natural health products side who are making submissions to the committee as well, in essentially in support of the of the bill. I suppose. No, <laughs> no, no, no. People um, on the natural health products side, a lot of them are unhappy with this, and they're unhappy because it's too much regulation. Not letting them say any damn thing they want about their products, as far as they're concerned, is government overreach. Um, mm-hmm. And you've got the conspiracy theorists, Kelvin Alp, etc., out there basically whinging about how you know this is this is a draconian law that's not going to let people say what they want to say. Of course, it's not going to let people say what they want to say. It's going to try and keep people safe. The only trouble mm. is it's not going far enough with that. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are some people in the middle that are happy, possibly the larger natural health companies we have over here, probably companies like Walida and others and Blackmores. I think they're going to be relatively happy with it. But a lot of those small kind of independent um, natural health product sellers and manufacturers are not going to be so happy because they won't have the clout to be able to get approval for their products. Uh, It's going to cost them money. And, you know, so far they've been basically making and selling products on a wing and a prayer And any kind of regulation for them is going to be more onerous than what they've currently got. So, yeah, as far as I understand, a lot of them are not happy. So there was a a listener article that came out late last year that I I read, and that had some some interesting points in it, although it was sort of strongly biased in favor of um, the uh, uh, natural health promoters who were sort of interviewed in that article. Um, But they one of the points they made is that there is – there are some barriers to exporters at the moment. So one of the aspects of this bill is that it's going to improve the regulations to allow innovative, in uh, in, in quotes, products to be created in New Zealand and exported uh, to the rest of the world. Uh, to me, that just means that we're possibly going to be exporting uh, products that make unsupported claims to the rest of the world, whereas previously that's been prevented because of the regulations. Um, so, yeah, who, who knows what's going to happen there? Yeah, that's not okay. Is exporting our nonsense is bad enough that, you know, we have yeah. it in country, but uh, selling it to other countries? Uh, although China for many years has really pushed for acceptance of Chinese traditional medicine in New Zealand. You know, there have been delegations that come over here to try and convince government to loosen restrictions. Maybe, maybe you know, if it's a tit for tat and we sell them our nonsense in return for their nonsense, maybe that I don't feel quite so bad about. Well, they, they've certainly had a lot of influence on the World Health Organization, haven't they? And some of the things that it has put out about traditional Chinese medicine have been pretty positive. And uh, that sort of stinks of uh, influence that the Chinese have had on it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, including acupuncture. Like the the WHO has been very positive over acupuncture in the past. They've reined it back in the last ten years or so. But before that, the the amount of documentation they released that was just waxing lyrical about how amazing acupuncture was. It was just depressing to read. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. So um, yeah. So what what's our next steps then in terms of um, putting together a submission? 
Yeah. So do we, I mean, need, this is, do we need help from our listeners? Th- yeah, this is not just for us, right? This is for our listeners. Um, for anybody that doesn't understand how things work over here with um, enacting new laws, basically um, there are there are several steps that a bill has to go through before it becomes an act. And if you check on the parliament website, it does a really good job of simply laying out what's going on. And for this bill, it's gone through one reading in the House. Now, as you say, it's at select committee. Um, And while it's at select committee, this is where we can put in submissions. And firstly, we can put in written submissions. And this is by, what, the 15th of February submissions need to be in. So anybody that's able to, please write a submission, no matter how short, how long, whatever you can manage, put it together, tell them the bits that you're unhappy with. Just do a search online. If you bring up the bill in your browser and just do a control F search and look for NHP, that's the abbreviation they're using for natural health product. Read those sections and just scribble down anything that you think looks bad. And if possible, make recommendations about how maybe the government can make it better. So that needs to be in by the 15th of February. After that, you may be asked if you would like to give an oral submission. And if you're comfortable with that, it's a really good thing to do. You get to sit and chat with a bunch of MPs for a while now. It's just been on Zoom because of COVID. But presumably for us, the skeptics here in Wellington will probably be able to go and do it in person, which I much prefer to do it that way. So I'm looking forward to being able to do an oral submission in person. I'm guessing, Bronwyn, it'll probably be me, you and Dan doing that. And maybe um, Katrina. Oh, mm. yes. And maybe Katrina as well. Maybe I'll have to step back and let the three of you do it. Mm. We'll we'll see how we go. We'll have a chat about that. But yeah, so we, we basically get two chances to do that. And um, when we do the oral submission, it'll kind of be an adjunct to our written submission. So we'll try and talk a little bit around our submission and then maybe get some extra stuff in. Um, and then it'll be a little bit of back and forth. So if anybody's willing to do that, willing to go and sit in front of some MPs and have a chat with them about why you think natural health products need more regulation, that would be really good. But even if you can only do the written submission, you don't have to do the oral part. Just write down what you think, send it um, send it off. Uh, you'll see on the website, there are decent instructions on how to do that. And the more people that have their say and say that natural health products need to be regulated strongly, I think the more likely we are to make a difference to this bill. And it does help hmm. with every submission being a unique submission as well. Um, I know that when we had the conversion, the bill, the conversion therapy bill, you know, it was really helpful for for the um, somebody, somebody put up a template that people could just submit to the MPs. But having a unique one does actually increase your chance of being able to do the oral. Hmm. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, MPs uh, can say, well, can sort of recognize that they're being sent the same thing from everybody and Uh, boring for them. Yep. Apparently, parliamentary staff, they gather them together and they staple them and um, the MPs get given one copy and then they get given a number of how many copies were received. So the sentiment of lots of people sending in the same thing is still there. MPs get told how many, but they'll only read the one copy, basically. Obviously. I mean, why would they read the same thing a hundred times? Exactly. Yes. (laughs) So you recommend that we should get ChatGPT to create a submission? (gasps) Okay. I like that idea. Yeah. (laughs) Please reword this submission as if it was written by somebody else. 
That might be an interesting thing to try out. <laughs> okay, so how about for any of our more tech literate listeners, members who might be interested in doing that, how about we try and get our submission done within a week and then anybody that would like to can download it from our website, chuck it into ChatGPT and ask ChatGPT <laughs> to riff on it and write a new version and submit something that's novel. Um, I would really like that if at least one of our listeners did that. Please, please, Jet GPT, turn the submission into a poem. <laughs> turn it, do it all in haiku. Nice, a maritime haiku. It would do it. It would do a pretty good job of it. <laughs> um, apparently, can rap as well. Oh gosh, <laughs> we just need a sceptical rap uh, artist to perform it for us. Uh, Bubba Brinkman or Graydon Square. There's a couple of half decent ones out there. Yeah, in New Zealand. No, in the States. <laughs> right. I mean, we just need to go to Fiverr and, you know, <laughs> outsource it. <laughs> uh, so, Mark, you told me you want to rant about cults. <sighs> I want to rant about podcast adverts, but the avenue I used in the newsletter to get to that was through a cult podcast. Yeah. So I've been I've been listening to um, quite a good podcast called A Little Bit Culty, and it's a couple of ex Nexium members. Anybody that wants to look up Nexium, that's not how you write it N X I V M if you're doing a Google search. But it's this weird recent cult that turned up in the states and Canada. I think that. Uh, it was a bit odd. Um, they ended up branding women at one point, and then it all fell apart, thankfully. Keith Raniere, the leader, he previously had run this um, multi-level marketing scheme that failed, but then he kind of rebranded as this guru who kept telling people he wasn't a guru, and so it went on. So in the aftermath of this, I think there have been like um, a couple of documentaries, one on Netflix, at least one dramatization movie so far. It, it's been quite a popular topic. And this podcast, and the podcast is started by a couple of the people who did really bring the cult to light and help break it up a few years ago when this happened. Um, Sarah Edmondson and her husband, Anthony Ames, who's called Nippy, because his middle name is something that sounds like Nippy, Nearpert or something, so it's shortened to Nippy. I, I don't get Americans and nicknames, but oh, hey-ho. Well, I mean, Nippert is a last name. Okay. Where I'm from. Right. So I think that was made into his middle name by his mother, and so it, he got, it got shortened to Nippy, and now he's called Nippy. Um, but yeah, so when I was listening to this podcast over the last few weeks, I've started first. I got annoyed by the adverts, and we'll come back to that. But then they had a couple of guests on who, as far as I know, are good people in the cult space, helping people get out of cults. But both of them talked about stuff that wasn't evidence based. So, Steve Hassan, who I've written about before, who came out with the bite model of the behavioral, et cetera, control that cults can have on you, and just trying to kind of document the different ways that cult control, cult control their members. He started talking about some weird stuff like using hypnosis as a treatment for um, cult addiction, which some kind of hypnosis may be, but hypnosis is that kind of commonly understood thing. It's not a thing. You know, as skeptics, we know that this is 
this is not an altered mind state. This is nothing weird and wonderful going on with the brain. And he then talked about how Trump was using neuro-linguistic programming to control people, how he was specially crafting his words with double meanings and saying them in certain ways that he could basically subliminally control people. It's another thing that's not a thing. Um, and then finally, he talked about how Jeffrey Epstein had been working with Vladimir Putin to record compromising material about leaders around the world, and he, they were using it to blackmail them. And I guess this is why, really why Jeffrey Epstein was A, arrested and B, killed rather than committing suicide. And this is all conspiracy, unproven nonsense. So someone who's respectable in the cult field, to hear them going down these paths was a little bit disappointing. And then I think it was the very next episode. They had Yanya Lalich on and she started talking about NLP as well. And she was talking about rebirthing as a thing to do to help people get out of cults. And she started talking about hypnotism. And it was like, oh, it's just painful. It's like these people and they are both cult survivors as well. But it seems like, you know, coming out of a cult doesn't automatically make you immune to nonsense. And and for these people, to an extent, they seem to have fallen into other beliefs that aren't evidence based that they, you know, they haven't instantly honed their skeptical skills to the point where their radar is going off when they hear these things. And it looks like they've been suckered in by a few things that aren't true. And it was kind of disappointing. Um, and so between that and the adverts for nonsense products like CBD, cannabis oil tablets for helping you sleep and brain boosting and Kachava, whatever the flipping heck that is. Um, and I looked on their website and there are other adverts coming out, but all the adverts that the hosts have decided that they would feature on their podcast. So it's like, well, the hosts are compromised because they're advertising nonsense. The guests aren't perfect skeptics. Um, it's like, what do I do with this podcast? Do I do I keep listening or do I walk away and listen to something else? And and that was my beginning of my rant. I eventually got onto the whole podcast advertising part of my rant, but that was where I started. Um, have, you, have you guys got any you, thoughts? Have you tried sending them an email? <sighs> no. <laughs> I I have, have done with a podcast before and it hasn't worked and it hasn't done anything. Have you tried right. offering them an alternative sponsorship, which is, you know, advertising our podcast if they do not, if they stop uh, well, advertising Woo? They do advertise some podcasts. They've started doing that in the last couple of episodes that I've been listening to. I have no problems with that. I have no problems with them advertising another podcast. Another thing I found that I don't have much of a problem with is when a podcast might have something that sounds iffy or just meh, and it's in a different voice. But the one thing I got to that really annoys me is when podcast hosts record themselves a personal message about how good this product is. And A, this is a product they've been given months of supply of for free. I mean, you know, they're, they're instantly biased because they don't have to pay for it. They've been given it for free. On top of that, most of the time they're lying. They either don't use this product because it just tastes like dust or they have used this product once and it was okay, but they're not using it anyway. But most of the time, these people are just lying because it's advertising, because this is how they make their money. They pretend this product's amazing. They pretend to use the product. And when a podcast host does this themselves, it annoys me. Doubly so when it's a skeptical podcast. When we have skeptical hosts 
who we're being asked to trust, who we're being told are doing the research to find out what's true and what's not, when they compromise that in order to sell me an effing mattress, I am not a happy bunny. Um, and this seems to happen with a few skeptical podcasts. And it's it riled me up to the point where I just stopped listening to any skeptical podcast where they try and con me into buying something based on their lies. They don't deserve my listenership. I find it horrible. I find it abhorrent. And that's my so, rant. Is it just mattresses or is it other products it's, that? It's Hulu. AdamEve.com, Mark. Yeah, it's Hulu and it's QuickBooks and it's all sorts. But, it's you know, we use this accounting package because I know full well they won't use it. I, I know they're just making it up to try and sell because every other podcast does that. But it's different when it's a skeptical podcast. Mm. They're asking for our trust and then they're selling that trust in order to make themselves a quick buck. But do you think do you think that perhaps they know that the their audience are in on the idea that they shouldn't take the ad seriously? No, because I've seen some people on YouTube that have done it like this, and those adverts, it's so blatantly obvious that they're just doing it for the money and they still get paid. But they, they mm. you know, at first I thought they were just making a, a like funny pretend adverts. And then I realized it's real products and it's from real advertisers that do advertise on YouTube and on podcasts. But it turns out that you can bend this so far it nearly breaks and you still get paid your advertising money, even though you're basically slagging the product off as, at the same time as promoting it. So you can do that and get your money. Skeptical podcasts that have been taking advertising have not been doing that. They have been compromising themselves and lying to their audience, saying that this is the best product out there. Just a bald face lie. And I hate it. Hate it. Hate it. Hate it. Fair enough. So uh, I, I know one of the podcasts you're talking about, and I happen to be a patron, so I don't hear any of their ads. Um, so you're just encouraging them. See, by giving them money, you're just encouraging them to do it more. Well, if more people gave them money, they probably wouldn't need to take advertising. But there are some other sceptical podcasts that I listen to. Um, the two that spring to mind are uh, Ono, Ross and Carey and uh, Sawbones. And both of them have, they do voiced ads and often the ads are entertaining because they are um, related to the topic they're talking about a little bit. Uh, and and they often do them in a quite humorous manner. But the sort of products they're advertising, they seem to be fairly reputable products. That uh, the ones that I've heard of are um, Rothy's shoes. Now I've not tried them out myself, but they are made from recycled uh, water bottles. So that seems like a uh, a a good a good thing and and they claim to be wearing them themselves and i have no reason to doubt that they're not wearing them I, maybe maybe i'll be I'm naive skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> you know skeptical about uh you know recycled water bottle shoes you know a yeah. lot of consumer pla a lot of consumer plastics um don't last long in the recycle in the recycle system mm. you know mm. you may be able to re re like recycle them maybe once and then they um deteriorate well, quite bad yeah who knows? Anyway, uh, well, I, I guess we should really, in order to evaluate them properly, they should should um, be 
properly evaluated in terms of actually uh, wearing them, I suppose. And They should send us free pairs and we should try yes. them. And if after two years they're still going strong, they can have one advert on our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yes, I mean, those those hosts, I, I definitely trust them more than, than the average podcast host, I think. Um, no, they pushed me so. over the edge. As soon as they started trying to hawk stuff to me and con me, I, I it's not okay. It is just not okay, for me yeah. at least. If you're compromised, Craig, that, that's fine. I, I accept that. <laughs> Perhaps I am. But of course, they have, they have to have some way of earning money. Um, so how would how do you do they? solve this? Where's our money? We don't have to have some way of earning money. We're doing fine. Well, maybe we're not. I don't know. Mm, what, what do well, you think, listeners? Are we doing okay? <laughs> Please send us feedback to... Where's the feedback well, go? <laughs> yeah, well, we'll talk about that later. Um, but yes, we, we don't have a huge audience. We uh, And and we don't... We do this as a part-time thing, whereas some of the other podcasts are doing it more as a as a full-time um, thing. They do it every week. Choice. That, that doesn't mean <laughs> yeah. they can compromise on their integrity because they want to make it a full-time job. It's their choice yeah. to make it a full-time job. They could go and get a job elsewhere, but it's no, it's no excuse to say, yeah, I need to make it a full-time job, so I've got to rip you off. I'm really sorry. <laughs> That's not okay. That's not skeptical. That's not kind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're being quite absolutist in this, Mark, but yeah. I am. I, I absolutely am. Yeah, and it's really nice skeptical podcasts that are the same, that understand this, like um, Skeptics with a K. I've heard them just absolutely taking the mick out of other skeptical podcasts by doing fake adverts, uh, and I absolutely love it because, you know, they, they get what's going on. They get that it's not okay to do this, and mm. so they start joking about, you know, mattresses and things, but they're not trying to sell me anything. Yeah, I wonder if it is a cultural thing that it tends to be more the American podcasts that do this. I think that's likely, yes. Because, mm. I mean, there's a lot in some of these American podcasts, there is actually a background crew who some of them will do the editing. They will do some of the research. Um, they'll do a lot of those yeah, day-to-day we, operations. So it's people that you I, have to pay. <laughs> I'm, I'm in favour of that. I'm in favour of that. I think we should start <laughs> advertising so we get somebody else to do the editing. Shut up and keep editing our podcast, Craig, and we'll keep researching. <laughs> but there also seems to have been a problem sort of, you know, during the, you know, the 2010s regarding podcast networks. Quite a few of them sort of fell apart due to accusations of um, sexual misconduct. I think um, Earwolf was one of them. So um, it's, I think it's caused a lot of people podcasts to either disappear or they start their own networks in replace. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, again, yeah. I mean, any podcast that's getting researchers to do research and editors to do editing and all that kind of stuff, they're choosing that. They're choosing not to do it themselves. And so it's their choice. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't justify compromising yourself. Hmm. You, you make that choice. And you, you should only make that choice if you can afford to do it in a way that isn't being horrible to your listeners. So, uh, but presumably there would be some products that they could actually honestly advertise. 
As I said, if it's in a third party voice, I think it feels a lot better. And I can't explain this because they're still hawking something that probably doesn't work. But it's that whole thing of lending your own voice and writing the personal story that it just seems to be like. I think most people do understand what the norm is for advertising. Advertising is going to be fluffy around the edges and it's going to compromise with the truth. And when we watch adverts on TV or elsewhere and they're professional adverts, we know that. But when it's your own podcast host talking about their personal experience with the product and then making it up to sell you something because that's their way of getting advertising money, people aren't prepared for that. That's not the norm. That's not what we're used to. And I, I think that's what makes it not okay. Mm. It, it certainly does seem to be a particular class of products and services that get advertised on podcasts, doesn't it? Mm. So Yeah, whereas on YouTube, you get a lot of, um, you know, NordVPN on a lot of the podcasts, right. I, on a lot of the um, YouTube channels I watch. And I'm like, do you do you really use a VPN for your Netflix? Maybe that's because you're doing dodgy things and uh, the algorithm thinks you need to have a VPN problem. <laughs> I mean, I'm just watching anti-MLM content. We are not the dodgy ones here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you don't hear podcasts, or at least the ones that I've listened to, you don't hear podcasts advertising like your everyday products, like a, um, what is an everyday product? Well, Well, you you don't don't hear them advertising coffee. Food products. They don't don't do local advertising. And that can, you know, whereas, you know, a national coffee brand, a lot of them probably wouldn't advertise for Starbucks. Because Starbucks knows, you know, where the more more effective advertising money could go to. Yeah. So, so, so coffee shops, but, but coffee products. Online, you're going for the online retailers. So, you know, your mm. adamandeve.com. Black Rifle Coffee, which okay. is some patriotic coffee brand, I think. All oh, right. Okay. Is that an InfoWars brand or something? I think InfoWars does sell it, but I think they sell elsewhere as well. But yeah, so right. it, it, I guess it's the stuff where, it, you know, there is no brick and mortar. Um, and especially where it's like new industries where they need to get advertising cheaply and they need mm. to get into a lot of ears without having to spend a lot of money because they're bootstrapping themselves as companies. So the mattress companies was a big one. You know, the whole idea of having a deflated mattress delivered to you and then it expands to 500 times its size or whatever it is. It seemed ridiculous, but they, you know, they went for it on podcasts. It's become popular. I bought one last year, and damn it, it's an amazing mattress. Right. <laughs> so, okay. So, <laughs> you're you're undermining your own point here, Mac. No, I'm not. I'm not because if a host of a skeptical podcast tells me that they're using this mattress and it's the most amazing mattress ever, I still feel like they are trading on their name in order to sell me something. If they Mac. play. If they play some some great, I don't know, Brad Pitt or someone reading out an advert for this mattress, fair enough. But if they're doing it themselves, they've crossed a line. So, so what brand mattress did you buy, Mac? I'm not saying because I don't want anybody to buy the damn mattress. Because <laughs> this has been the most uh, elaborate ad on a podcast. You know? <laughs> yeah, this, you have no idea how much I'm getting paid for this advert. I mean, you know, I have strung it out for so long. Mattress. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. But, yeah, well, I'm intrigued by the idea of inflatable mattresses. So I, I'm interested that you actually found that it's a nice, comfortable mattress. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just, it, it, it's foam, right? So it's like a solid yeah. foam, but they just suck all the air out of it and treat yes, wrap it. Of course. Of course. Um, but it, it's, but a, it's a really solid foam when it comes out. It's 
surprising. So is it as comfortable as a traditional mattress that you have on a bed with, with the springs or whatever? Inner sprung mattress. Well, my yeah. inner sprung mattress, I had springs in my ribs, so it was definitely more comfortable than that. It was that. on its way out. Okay. Right. <laughs> well, it, it was definitely on its way out when it caught fire when the electric blanket went wrong, and my wife woke up with half the bed basically in flames next to her. <laughs> I I wasn't in bed yet, so uh, yeah. No, that at that point the mattress was definitely compromised. It was a big hole in the side. Most of the padding had burnt out, so we really needed a new one. Right, you hadn't been listening to podcasts advertising electric blankets. I no, I I but I bought this foam mattress in spite of the fact that I'd heard advertising on podcasts. It's like, on, on principle, I don't want to buy one of these damn online mattresses, but I did it anyway because I read so many reviews. I spent so many hours doing my research, and it's like, oh, actually, it looks like maybe they're okay, and not just maybe they're okay when you read the reviews on their own website, but you know, going externally, it also looks like maybe they're an okay thing. Yeah. And it turns out that, you know, I think it's probably as comfortable as the one I tried in Harvey Norman and a fifth of the price. So I was mm, I was very happy. Right. right. Very good. All right. Uh, so, Bronwyn, mm. you are going to tell us about some very long named um, cult Science of Identity Foundation is not that long of a name. and No, but the guy who was associated with it. Just call him Chris. Uh, yeah, Chris. <laughs> A.K.A. Just call him Chris. Come that's on, give I us did. his proper name. But that's what I did. I was not going to go into a swam- go Swami name. Absolutely not. Um, but the person you can blame for that uh, monstrosity of an article is uh, our treasurer, Daniel Smith, um, we had a bit of a catch up uh, during the Christchurch skeptics in the pub meeting, and he sort of mentioned that he was listening to a podcast and there was this cult um, that had a lot of connections in New Zealand and was also tied to an American politician. Um, so after I wrote um, the Digital Assets article and the Ananda Marga article, I was looking into what this group could have been. And I kind I find, yeah, there's Science of Identity Foundation has some deep roots in New Zealand. Um, both financial and uh, recruitment wise. Hmm. So how do how do they how do you think they get started? I mean, so, so there's a new cult that comes to New Zealand. How does it go about just attracting members? Is it is it just a charismatic leader, or I think I think there's a little bit of charisma, um, but I think also sometimes you see them use really lean into an existing spiritual leadership base. So Mm. for Chris Butler, he was, he had his own sort of following, but it was very small in Hawaii. And this is sort of at the time when the Hare Krishnas are starting to rise in popularity and in the public consciousness. And Chris sort of had a similar group, but he could not, he couldn't really fight against the popularity of the Hare Krishnas. So he eventually joins them with a bit of money, gives the leader of the Hare Krishnas about $28,000. And at some point, over, by about 1972, he sent to New Zealand to help a guy named um, Muncie, or otherwise known as um, Arshina, Ar- Arch- Archara Das, to help keep the New Zealand um, Hare Krishna temple open. Because it's, for some reason, this temple was on the verge of collapse. And I think it was maybe Butler's charisma 
and maybe potentially he was promising something that was maybe a little less strict because what makes science of identity foundation different from Harry Krishna is that SIF doesn't require people to become monastic. You can still have your own job. You can have a family, you can get married, you can wear your normal clothes. You don't have to shave your head. Um, but you still, you can still go chant Harry Krishna on the weekends. So for many, that probably was a bit, a bit of a, you know, had a bigger, bigger appeal than what the traditional Hare Krishna or ISKCON was offering at that time. But that was something that, you know, Chris, I think, had to really wait a little bit um, before he could go and release that to the world. Can I just try quickly reading Chris's uh, guru name? Are you ready for this? Go ahead. Here we go. I'm going to butcher it. Have you been practicing? No, I haven't, but I've put some spaces in it to make it easier to read. Um, his name is, for anybody that wants to Google it, Jagad Guru Siddhaswaru Pananda Paramahamsa. Goswami. Goswami. Very good. I think, I think that was a very good attempt. Yeah. And it was kind of funny because initially I was trying to do some searches for um, Guru Jagat. Um, some people have sort of seen a video about her show up on their YouTube feeds recently. Um, she was a yogini um, in the Kundalini um, specialty who died a couple of, um, yeah, if not last year, then the year before um, due to an infection. But she was also very, a, a very controversial um, yoga leader. But she was female and she was young. She was probably in her 30s when she died um, recently. And she was called, and her, the name that she was given by her, by the leader of the Kundalini sort of yoga was um, Guru Jagat. So it was a little bit confusing for a while trying to figure out, is this information about her? Oh, no, it's about this guy. And then I find out, oh, wait, it's a guy I've been trying to, I've also been researching on. So <clears throat> I think, Mark, you brought up in your news here something about cults and um, how the organizations that are sort of helping people out of cults are sort of not necessarily skeptical themselves. Um, and and I, I know from sort of research in the past that there's an organization in New Zealand called Cult Watch that's run by Christians, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I think Bronwyn knows more about this than me. But yeah, when I first found this, I think soon after I got to New Zealand 15 years ago, mm. at first it was like, this is a really good cult resource. And then it didn't take long from kind of reading entries to go, this is weird. There are some Christian groups that it, it really gives the green light to. Mm. Oh, and hang on a minute. Atheism is seen as a cult. What the hell is going on? Here? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's a great, yeah, you know, and like um, cults.co.nz, great list, great resource. But again, you know, when you come to some of the Christian groups, it's given a bit of a pass. And similar accusations are thrown against Rick Ross, who runs a really big international resource, um, the Cult Education Institute. And people sort of accuse him of sort of, you know, given, you know, giving a pass to more Jewish organizations. So there's a lot of, you know, the idea of the anti-cult or the cult awareness culture can be a bit of a gray space. You know, you have, mm. you know, the anti-cult the anti -cult experts who come in with their own angles, but you also have the people who are coming out of cults. Now, so not everyone's born into a cult. Some people choose to enter an organization. Maybe it wasn't a cult in the beginning, but it becomes culty over time if we're going to give people, you know, that amount of grace. So when mm. they come out of a cult, you know, all of a sudden, you maybe you've lost your friends, you've lost your family, you've lost, you know, your purpose in life, you lost a direction. So you, 
you know, it's really easy to latch on to another group that maybe temporarily fills temporarily fills that void. Um, Mark, you were talking about maybe how for some that might be the glory of believers trust that might be sort of doing that same thing, even though we have sort of a lot of the same goals that we want. To yeah. Achieve. Yeah. So this this is one way, you know, I, I feel like in a way that the enemy of our enemy. So they're our friend and where we can, we should work with them. But at the same time, it's a religious group. It seems to be it was started by a church. And if not spoken, it seems like unspoken. The expectation is that Gloria Vale um, leavers are, you know, more than welcome to come into the church and kind of expected to become a part of this church. Um, um, and I, I think I think they're at the good end of things. But from what I understand, they're also they're a little bit conservative. So, you know, not even at the liberal end of uh, Christianity, but maybe maybe for a lot of cult leavers, that's what they need is something that is not so cult-like that, mm-hmm. you know, that cold turkey of going full-on skeptic is probably more than most people could handle <laughs> and maybe coming to something that isn't going to mess up your entire life, take all your savings and force you to spend 16 hours a day cleaning. Maybe that's, you know, enough of a step at first, at least. I think, though, you need to be careful, you know, when we're, when we're dealing with people who have come out of these sort of high control organizations is that they don't necessarily, you know, they don't can't expect them to have a high amount of critical thinking or discernment. Hmm. And that doesn't mean that they're stupid. It just means that they've probably spent a long, a long part of their life being seriously misled and fed misinformation. Yes. And I think it's people's worldview a lot of the time that, you know, you, you build up this coherent picture of the world and that kind of informs how you see everything. And, and until that changes, until you have a worldview that, you know, it involves skepticism and critical thinking and, and evidence-based and understanding science, I think it's very easy for people to fall from one cult to another. And certainly on this podcast, a little bit culty, some of the guests they've had who've been in different cults talk about how, you know, they were in a cult for two years and they left. And within three months, they were in another cult that they just bounce from one to another because they're still searching for that thing. They still think that there is a man on earth that has all the answers. They just come out of that cult and think, well, that man didn't have all the answers. What about the next man who says he's a guru? Maybe he's the one that's actually figured it all out. And what they haven't got round to is understanding that nobody's got all the answers. Um, that, you know, we're all just fumbling in the dark a bit. And the best thing we've got that helps us fumble is science, Mm -hmm. Uh, not people who have divine revelations after they've climbed up a mountain and sat there praying for three days. But but anecdotally, you do see people jumping from MLM to MLM for the same thing. And often MLMs really lean on these pseudoscientific claims. Yeah, and so the profits that they made in their first MLM and invest them into the second MLM. <laughs> so one of the um, little bit culty episodes I've listened to so far had an MLM expert who said that actually this is one of the differences between MLMs and cults is that cults are kind of, you know, they want to control people, but there's a little bit more flow from cult to cult. Whereas with MLMs, apparently they really shut down even more than cults do on anything to do with another cult. You can't talk about other MLMs. You you can't, you know, entertain <laughs> the that, idea of jumping to another MLM. That was a Freudian slip there. It was, wasn't it? it? Yeah. <laughs> MLMs, uh, that was the point of the podcast as well, like my Freudian slip there, was it, are MLMs cults? And, you know, the, I think the, um, the conclusion they came to was, well, they're not quite the same, but there is a lot of 
crossover. There is a lot of similarity between the two to do with control and becoming the entirety of somebody's life. Uh, You know, I've known people in MLMs where that becomes their social circle and that becomes their business interests and and everything, you know, oh, and you want your accounts done? Well, we've got somebody inside the MLM that'll do your accounts for you. Uh, And they, they try and keep you in that circle for everything, the same way that cults do, that cults will take over your entire life and disempower you in that way. Mm. And I think, and I think at least um, when you sort of reach the higher levels in many MLMs, there are rules that are sort of very, very not well defined. But essentially, if you go and uh, try and take some of your people away to a different MLM, then that's the end of it for you. They can they can sue you and and basically kick you out, even if you've sort of got uh, got quite a you've established quite a business with them. I haven't heard about people being sued. Um, technically, what you can't do is work for another MLM while you work, you know, with, you can't work with two different MLMs at the same time. Right. Right. It is very, very common for high ranking persons to be given a uh, being given a boost, a financial boost or a financial payout from the new MLM to come over. And maybe right. that means that a lot of legal action or maybe fines are easily covered. Yeah. Mm, and I, I okay. think you'll find that a lot of new MLMs are started by people from older MLMs who are, yeah. you know, disappointed that not making yeah. their way further up. Because, of course, the promise of MLMs is that over time you make your way up towards the top, like you said earlier, Craig. But the reality is, why would anybody at the top of an MLM vacate their seat when they're making money hand over fist? Nobody's giving up a gig like that. Nobody's going to go, well, I've got five million. I've got enough now. I'm going to buy my yacht and just... <laughs> disappear, people will take as much money as they can have. So you are not making your way further up. And so I think MLMs like USANA is one where, you know, the leaders of USANA came from another MLM and and off they go to make their own selling pretty much the same thing because that's what they know. They know vitamins. And so they start a new MLM selling pretty much the same product. Hmm. Yeah. So it seems there's, there's things. Yeah. There's, there's some people who get out of MLMs and then decide that, um, it was a stupid idea and unethical and all that sort of thing. And then there are others that get out of one MLM and go and use those uh, skills that they've uh, acquired in one MLM <laughs> to go and set up a similar kind of network. And 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 yeah, yeah. Those, I guess are they the sociopaths, <laughs> or just join another one? Unethical you know, again, people. yeah. Like with the cults, there are people that come out of one MLM and go, well, that MLM didn't work for me. I wonder if this one will be any better. Oh, yeah, mm. look at the benefits I get on this one. This this reads on paper a lot better, and off they go and just fall into the same trap again. And, and some people seem resistant to learning from their mistakes, which is really unfortunate. Mm. You kind of wonder whether they uh, tap the same group of friends to uh, go and try and con <sighs> them into being their downline. That's a really good point because generally you burn through your friends in an MLM. So what do you yeah. do? I mean, do you go and join a new knitting group just so you can find new victims <laughs> if you if you go to another MLM? Hadn't thought of that, but that that's one part that would be hard. It would definitely yeah. make it harder to go to a new one. Yeah. So Craig, have you ever joined an MLM? <laughs> Don't just laugh. <laughs> Give us a response. Uh, yes, Secrets actually. Secrets <laughs> yes. Oh. oh, okay. Come on. Tell us more. <laughs> oh, it's a very embarrassing time in my life. Um, but yes, in my in my mid-20s, I was briefly part of Amway. Whoa. Uh, 
and it only only because of uh, my wife's at the time my my ex-wife's parents got into it and they kind of convinced us to get into it and uh yeah no so um, certainly i was no good at signing anybody up and uh the products were expensive and uh and there was uh some nasty religious connotations to it all and but i went to an amway conference in wellington and uh it was a rah rah event and um yeah no but yes i i think i was in it for about nine months and then uh then basically bailed cut cut our losses no okay that's a good story thank you and bromwin you've joined an mlm um didn't join an mlm but products from an mlm oh okay all right that, that's a that's an important distinction well you know it's the uh, military life military wife pipeline right <laughs> um, but it was yes. a food product mlm but i didn't know it was an mlm at the time um, ah. But, you know, it was a standard, you know, come to the house. We're going to have a food party. This person's going to show some products. I liked them. They were very tasty. Excellent stuff. Um, ordered a particular spice pack and didn't realize that they had put me on a drop shipping or, you know, repeat account. And they'd done right. that without my consent. So they kept charging you and sending you product, even though only, you only for that one month. I kept the product and I got my, you know, they canceled my account. <laughs> Because the person who was a distributor at the time, she didn't realize that this was happening and she was quite upset about it because I think she had jumped from another from another MLM to this one. Right. So it was all just an unfortunate accident, huh? So, you know, <laughs> so I'm told. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm finding that hard to believe. It's an MLM. I mean, you know, hook, hook or crook, they're going to get their customers, right? Yep. Yes. Hey, what about you, Mark? I've never joined an MLM. I don't think I've ever bought a product from an MLM. I have tried to talk friends out of joining an MLM. I've been to MLM meetings. I've argued with people um, who were trying to sell MLMs. Um, I've secretly recorded people talking nonsense who were trying to sell MLMs. But thankfully, I guess I became enough of a skeptic before I got sucked into one of them that I just happened to escape. Not like I would be totally immune, but yeah, I think my skepticism came before the opportunity was presented to me, thankfully. Mm, yeah, well, it's, it's my memories from it are <laughs> pretty sad, really. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of cringy to think of uh, uh, sort of trying to sell this thing to your friends. So, mm. Oh, and I had a man come around to my house for two hours and try and convince me to join an MLM who um, ended up being a raving conspiracy theorist. So we also wanted to talk about how 9-11 was a hoax and all this kind of thing, which <laughs> obviously I'm more than happy to talk about. I, I just loved the entire conversation. Right. Yeah. So I had, a, I had a, I remember a vacuum cleaner salesman. I think it was a Kirby. You remember the Kirby brand? They're probably still around. But yeah, there was a guy who was a school teacher who was a vacuum seat cleaner salesman on the side, and he uh, came and demonstrated it and then started talking about how there was rain seeding technology that uh, some governments were using. <laughs> <laughs> I think I had a Kirby person come round once because they had they said they could do a demonstration, and I'm like, brilliant. Mm. So the guy came round and he did my vacuum cleaner. And then he used his vacuum cleaner with a filter attached and showed me there was still dirt being picked up. So, you know, put a white filter in and it mm. starts to go black. And then I said, okay, now attach that, that machine or that device 
back on my vacuum with a brand new filter and let's see if it sucks up stuff that yours didn't. And suddenly it's, <laughs> oh no, I, I, it doesn't fit your vacuum. I can't do that. And we don't have the right attachments. We can only test in one direction. I'm like, well, it's not a valid test then, is it? Yeah, you know, <laughs> who knows how much better my vacuum will do the second time round. I always say it shouldn't be marketing to you. No, but I think the other reason, apart from the demonstration that I just wanted fun with, the other reason I signed up was I was going to get a free prize and I never got it. They yeah. said they'd mail me something and it never turned up. I can't say I'm surprised. Yes, a little recourse, I would think. Yeah, it was all verbal, but at least they didn't harass me. You know, I've had some groups where I've signed up and they've just, they keep hassling you and messaging you all the time. This vacuum cleaner seller at least wasn't like that. I think once they realized that I wasn't interested in the vacuum, they just kind of let it go. So what have we got coming up on the skeptical calendar? We have Skeptics in the Pub in Wellington on Friday. Uh, same bat time, same bat channel. <laughs> Very good. Very good. And Which for people next- who don't know is 6 p.m. at the Intercontinental Hotel Lobby Lounge inside the hotel. <laughs> oh, you had to say it. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. say it really. And uh, the next Skeptics in Cyberspace, when's that on? Good question. Is that next week? Is that already? It might be. Bronwyn? Yes, next week. Right. Awesome. Oh, very good. Okay. I will I will att- attempt to attend that one. February 3rd. Actually, no, I won't. No, we're heading away that weekend. So, no, I won't be attending it, unfortunately. <laughs> you can Maybe connect from inside your Tesla. There's a big screen in there. Surely you can zoom on that. <laughs> or is it going to use all your battery? No, no, no. No, no. I think we'll be, we'll be in, in Taronga at that point. Um, All right. Anyway, I'll edit this stuff out so that um, that people don't get put off from coming to Skeptics in Cyberspace because I'll. <laughs> yes, because the only reason they turn up is in the hope that they might get to say hello to you. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, and we'll be having Skeptics in the pub in Auckland again on the 7th of February at the Dyson Fork, being the first Tuesday in the month. Awesome. And we've got activism, skeptical activism, Thursday next week in Wellington, Falkenborough from six o'clock, 6.30-ish, something like that. But it's all on meetup.com. Just go on to meetup.com, look for skeptics in the pub, come and visit us, say hello, have a beer. Hmm. All right. You've been listening to the ENR podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, you can email us, news at skeptics.nz. And uh, we will see you all next time. Bye. See you later. Bye.